0: Left. We want to talk right down to in a language that here can understand.
1: This is Mr. Christopher with the Funkatopia Radio Show. Some of you may be listening via the Funked Up app, and I have the honor of speaking with the one and only Doug Wimbish from Living Color. How are you, buddy?
0: How you doing, man? All is good.
1: <laughs> For those of you who are not familiar uh, with Doug, he is bes- outside of Living Color. His hands have been in so many different projects. Uh, I mean, he's he sat in with the Rolling Stones. I mean, I think he started back with uh, the Sugar Hill Gang and Grandmaster Flash. Um, you've kind of been all over the, the map. And then these little really cool little projects like, you know, the Black Jack Johnson projects and stuff like that. So um, let me just first say, big fan, and it's so awesome to have you on the on the station. So I appreciate you taking the time out.
0: Thank you. So, Pleasure being here.
1: Yeah. So let's start out with with Sugar Hill Gang because now you know most people only know you know the, the, their big hit, but the, you were really involved in that. You, but you were involved in you know, Apache. And uh, Grandmaster Flashes, you know, The Message and, and White Lines. So some really impactful uh, stuff. Uh, so tell me exactly how, was that your first first gig? How did you even get involved in that?
0: Well, to talk about Sugar Hill, we have to start at the beginning of my career with the uh, record label. Uh, Joe and Sylvia Robinson preceded Sugar Hill Records with the label called All Platinum Records. All right. I was a part of a band called Wood Brass and Steel. We were also the studio band recording for artists like The Moments, Shirley and Company, Sylvia Robinson, Jack McDuff, Etta James, oh God. Solomon, <laughs> Solomon Burke. Chess artists that they had acquired as well. Oh, my. Um, And that began in 1974. I was 17 years old. Bought into the studio uh, at an early age. And, uh, yeah, the journey began there. Fast forward after five years from 1974 to 1979. In that time frame, I did those artists that I mentioned. Also was involved with uh, some some of the disco artists that were happening at the time, uh, working with a band called Musique. Mm-hmm. 1979 came around. I had recorded my uh, two Woodbrass and Steel records at that time. Second Woodbrass and Steel record being Hard and Heavy. Um, and uh, I remember getting a... I remember leaving the 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 label at that time. You know, right around 1979 it kind of ran its course. label it ran some difficulties. Fast forward, um, around the um, September, no late August of nineteen seventy-nine, Sylvia Robinson called my mom's house. I was at that time working with still with my friends from Woodbrass Steel because of our dispute that we had had with the label at that time my elders I like to call them because I was the youngest we were more or less boycotting the label at that time <laughs> and um, I remember being at a you know she called my house a couple of times and I, guys like I oh, don't return the call so I didn't and fast forward I remember one day uh, we were playing at this club it was in New Haven, Connecticut, and it was called Leo's Welfare Disco. And it was why was it called Leo's Welfare Disco? It was right next to the to the welfare office. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the motto to get inside that club was three dollars or a black eye. It was real ghetto. I'm in the club. Rapper's delight comes on because of my five years of recording at all platinum studios and knowing the sound of a studio and the records that they produce like Stax, like Motown, right. like, you know, the great labels that we, you know, you could hear a band and know that's obviously a Motown record, just hear it. And that's when Rapper's Delight came on. It was like, that's an all platinum record because no studio could sound that cheesy. And, uh... <laughs> At Is that, that, that what she time, was called you
1: about? Was that what she was trying to get in
0: touch with you for? Yeah, she was calling me to cut Rapper's Delight. And at that time, um, you know, things happened really quick. So Rapper's Delight had been cut, came out real quick. DJ had it. He played it. Probably all within you know a couple of weeks. Um, and at that point, I said, you know, this is what Sylvia's calling about. She called again, and that time I took the call, and she, we basically had a conversation. The conversation was went this way. Hey, Doug, how you doing? Look, I got a hit. That's something that's really hot. I need to get you and Skip to come back down and Skip McDonald, guitarist with Wood, Brass & Steel. She always took a Shining to myself and Skip out of the band with Brass and Steel. We had a big band, but she really took a Shining to me and Skip. I was, the, I was the youngest in a group of elders. At that time, the bass was really in your face between, you know, that 70s era. And I said, OK, I'll come down. So I came down to New Jersey, drove down. And at that time, we had Keith LeBlanc. Just met him maybe a few weeks before. He had never been to the recording studio before, so he was really gun hoted. Come on, man, let's go. I'll drive you down. We ended up going down. And, uh, you know, at that point, she was like, thanks for coming. Got something that's really hot. Next thing you know, I'm back in this environment that I kind of left prior, but it was there was new life being generated by the hit of, of Rapper's Delight. Same day we went there, not only did we meet the rappers, one to my guy and Hank we also went right in the studio and started to just experiment and bang around and Sylvia we I was really pretty tight with Sylvia she really she really liked me and I and I you know being a youngster in a very old pimped out uh, scenario she was she was like all right don't, don't corrupt don't corrupt that young boy now so she took a shine into me at a very young age and I and uh basically that started the next phase of of my recording career under the name uh, under with old friends with a new name Sugar Hill Records it happened very quickly so within almost like days it went from going back cutting in the studio the first day coming it was on a weekend it was on a Friday next Monday it's like come on back down we got some more stuff happening matter of fact I'd like for you guys to play a show with the Sugar Hill Gang at a place called Harlem World. And at that time there was the band, um what's that band? Uh Positive Force. And they were from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Some of those right. members recorded the original Rapper's Delight. Right. With but Chip Stern was the bassist that ended up he had just happened to be in the studio at the time when the when Positive Force's bass player got tired of waiting around and he ended up playing Raptors to Life by just being there. So anyway, she kind of had a a great idea to kind of like merge myself and skip into the uh, into being the band for the Sugar Hill Gang. So everything happened really quick. It was like a matter of within within a few days. It went from going back Starting the same day, Monday going back down, doing some more recording, vibing it up. And then there was a gig that they had at Harlem World. And basically what Sylvia did was she, she basically, she had, she already, the gig was already promised up to Positive Force because they were kind of like scheduled to back them up. So all she did was just take me and Skip inserted us into their band and, um, and then that kind of created a little bit of a vibe because hey, now you got uh, two drummers, two bass players, two guitar players, and Sylvia was kind of you know she knew how that would play out. So anyway, Positive Force has we got the funk, we want uh, we got the funk, we got the funk, yeah. So they had a hit that was vibing. They went off to do their thing. Myself, Keith, and Skip, and Craig Derry, who had been at at All Platinum as well, another one of my elders, became... came the backing band for the Sugar Hill gang, um, pretty much within within one week. And then the record was so guys so I so I'd like to say ginormous, you know. Um and uh it just was it just created a whole nother world and a lot of a lot of income a lot of money for the Robinsons. The offer came for the Sugar Hill Gang, to open up for George Clinton, Parliament Funkadelic, on the Me Deep Tour. Mm. So our first, we ended up doing a few dates prior. A couple of went up to Columbia, South Carolina, did a date there. And, you know, the next you know, boom. October 31st on Halloween, 1979, we started the tour with Parliament Funkadelic uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. And that went straight through until... December and so it's like boom 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 and at that time a new studio was being built off, the, off of Rapper's Delight Money other artists were coming were coming through there as well Spoonie G again I mentioned we went to Columbia, South Carolina prior to the the Deep Tour and we ended up meeting who who, who, who came out to be uh, the sequence NGB, Blondie and Cheryl La Pearl And when we rolled up in Columbia, South Carolina, it's supposed to have been like early October, they were already outside the arena waiting to, you know, they they got wind, we were coming there. So they were like, you know, we're gonna audition for Sylvia and get ourselves, try to get ourselves a record deal. And they did, they, um, basically, they auditioned uh, in front of Sylvia. And then Sylvia was like, where's Doug? Go find Doug. I was kind of like her go-to guy. Joey, Joey Robinson comes looking for me. Mommy's looking for you. I said, okay. So bring your bass. And I go over there, and it's, it's the same three girls that I saw when the bus rolled up. And they're like, Sylvia's like, um, sing a song for Doug. So they had already did some kind of like, did like, like a sort of vibe for Sylvia. And they didn't want to repeat themselves. So they ended up singing Funk You Up. And, um, and I had my bass. And we basically wrote... I mean, they started singing FUNCIE UP. I started playing the bass line instantly. I mean, without it being plugged in. kind of wrote it right on the spot at the audition. And, uh, you know, it was just like... It was like vibing it up and stuff. So after that, and mind you, at this time, there was always a lot of people around. It was never a one-on-one kind of vibe because with the Sugar Hill game came up a lot of... Other folks that were there and taste seekers and stuff. The cats were always hanging out. So Sylvia, after the funky up vibe and everybody's grooving and we're checking out, the, you know that southern swagger that the girls had. You know, and Sylvia goes to me and says, Doug, what's, really, what do you think? I like the girls. I, uh, what do you think? I said, well, you, know, bitch. Why don't, you know, you know you? just you, why do we? I like that track. Let's 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 cut something on it. She's like, Well, I'm gonna need your help. What are you talking? What's he, what you talking about? She said, "Well, if I bring them up to New York, I need you know can you, can you help me look out for them, you know, because they're from Columbia, South Carolina. We're bringing them into the lion's mouth, of course. Myself, not just me, but Skip and Craig. Who's you know we're like one big family of brothers. So she flew them up, and uh, and it's deep because you know I don't think that they had ever even it maybe they they this was a big thing for." Cheryl, Angie, and Blondie, you know, I don't think they've been on a plane. I remember there was like, you know, they had to, I think if I remember right, one of them had to get, didn't even tell their mom where they were going, you know what I mean? When oh, they got no. spending the night, I'm spending <laughs> the night over at Blondie's house or something like this or whatever, and it all came out later in the wash, but, you know, they ended up, um, they're young, you know what I mean? You know, they were, they were 17, 18, stuff like that, but they came up and we instantly cut Funk You Up like the same within 48 hours of the time they arrived, you know, and uh, got the studio cut that. And uh, that also started the whole beginning of, like, you know, not being credited for stuff that I kind of was a writer on, which, you know, is like the repeat of Motown again. You know, you kind of like, because I'm in a band, you know, if I was an individual, I probably could have, it would have been easier for me to, to uh, be credited for things. But I did write Funk You Up, fast you know, with, uh, you know, the music. And uh, back in those days, you know, Sylvia took credit for everything. Like any record you did, Sylvia Robinson plus the artist. And And it wasn't that Sylvia didn't have input on it. It was just her way of keeping musicians and other folks separated from the business. And a lot of times this is the practice that took place, you know, So it was one of the reasons why I was cautious of going back there in the first place, because I knew the practice of how they work. But in light of the, uh, you know, uh, in light of kind of like the um, the 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 rush of hip hop and also being out there gigging and doing certain things, you know, you think that things might be able to get better over time, you know, and it never did. But, you know, I'm credited for some things, but not all things. But that's a whole, that's, that's a whole nother story that he could have another, that, that's very real to the, to the, to the history of the Robinsons and also very real to the demise of the Robinsons. But that being said, um, you know, it was a continuous movement that took place from the Sugar Hill gang, then we did something with, Spoony G, Sequence. And then at that point, it got the ears of the original rappers I like to say. Grandmaster Flash, Funky 4, Treacherous 3, Crash Crew. Yep. You know, at that point, they were still in New York doing records and there was a label or artist named or, or, or a person that had a label that, or a, record, a record store on 125th Street, Bobby Robinson, no relation. I'm not sure if he was related to Joe. I don't think so. But Joe and Bobby, Rob- Bobby Robinson had a record store on 125th Street and a lot of hip, a lot of hip hop was available from there. It's also, you know, hip hop was, if you know the history, it was like cats would make mixtapes and give them to the gypsy cats in New right. York. And they, you know, you could get a Grandmaster Flash Gypsy, you know, riding a gypsy cab, and you know, you'd hear his taping, man. The gypsy cab drivers would be selling their shit,
1: yeah, it was fifty a bucks a pop. A lot of bootlegging and stuff happening. Lot, back bootle-
0: back. lot of bootlegging going on. So it was, it was early entrepreneur, and You found a way to get the music out there. So anyway, Joe Robinson knew Bobby Robinson, and to be able to, you know, Joe was a numbers runner, so he knew the game. So in order to have a monopoly on the on the industry, Joe was Joe decided to get his hands on as much of the other hip hop stuff that was available so that there was, you know, to kind of like, you know, just look, let me just grab it. Let me get the, let me, you know, let me, let me vibe it up and get the original cats to come and, and sign them as well. That's what he did. So I remember, the, I remember the day that uh, Grandmaster Flash took the bus over from the George Washington Bridge and walked up the street and came to the studio. I remember uh, I remember going to, to the Apollo Theater with Sylvia and DJ Hollywood would be there and he was spinning at, and having he had a night there, you know, and this is even pre-Mr. Magic. So there was a couple of tape cats that were doing stuff. Everybody was kind of like, because of the hit of Sugar Hill and the the desire for artists to want to be, uh, you know, under these artists to want to be successful and that was their vehicle so before you know it over time joe and then acquired these other artists and then we cut you know when flash came there they were like the real there was beyond the real deal so we ended up cutting first song we cut with them who cut all fingers was freedom you know and um it just just kept going on and on then funky four came and we cut that's the joint Sylvia Robertson had a great idea of putting together Spoonie G and Sequence, and we cut Mobster Jam. So, you know, Sylvia was a, it still would always be, to me, she's a very creative person. She had a she had the, um, great musical ear. She knew how to create a scene and when she could smell a hit. When she got a, a wind of it, everything else stopped. Whatever was going on in the studios, if something was hot, you just park that, we're cutting this. And that's how it went.
1: Now, is, she so still, month, is she still
0: alive? Well, she passed away about, oh, I think she probably passed away almost nine years ago. Something like that. So they, it's it's been a very interesting, yeah. the saga of the Robinsons is deep, you know. Yeah. Um, Joe passed <laughs> first. You know, Joe Sr. Joe passed. Sylvia passed. Joe um Squishy was the youngest son, Lee, uh, uh, uh Rondo. He's the younger son, he passed a couple of years ago. Maybe two years ago, Joey Jr. passed. And there's only one surviving member left that's leaving. And
1: so what's he doing?
0: Spending all the money. <laughs> he's kinda like inherited all the stuff and kind of like got kids and you know he's got a he's got there was a reality show that came out, the first family of hip-hop. That was Leland Robinson that came out on the TV, you know, one of these, you know, networks and stuff. About a year ago, even only this year, I stumbled across that stuff. So, I mean, he, in- he inherited the empire. That empire got kind of, you know, taken over by other empires. Right. Universal Music ended up acquiring the catalog. And, you know, like all empires, they all find... They all crumble eventually, um, but the legacy lives on. And he's the last living member, surviving member of the of the Robinsons. And in that period of Sylvia, you know, because I got, you know, here's the deal. I got a lot of, re- I have a lot of respect for Joe and Sylvia Robinson. They built their empire from, you know, Joe was in the Navy, came out, you know, got his hustle on. This is way before Puffy and all that stuff. He's, they ain't got shit on Joe. Right. And then basically started the. You know, Joe knew Nikki Barnes. He knew the, the Nation of Islam. He knew Malcolm X. He was deep into a lot of different things for real. So he was a numbers runner, and he had and he and he also knew the folks from the Gambino crime family. He also knew Morris Levy so i was there at a time when a lot of this was all going on as a young kid you know seeing cats with you know the you know the mafia cats coming over you know, um they ta- they had gotten problems with taxes and next thing you come there one day and the gate is, is fenced up by the irs and stuff like that all kinds of stuff i only want I, I i think i've touched on enough to be able to hopefully you know to, you know over the years you know you keep your mouth shut to survive some of the things you see. Well, but, before, uh,
1: we'll be- before we leave that period, though, now, now, rappers delight was one thing, but when Grandmaster Flash hit with the message and White Lines, which you were also involved in, this this was literally a, a tipping point for rap and hip hop because there was there was reality in it. It wasn't just. Silliness, chicken tasting like wood. This was this was reality. And were you, when you heard him, or when you were involved in that project at the time when you're recording it, are you thinking, "Oh, this is this"? Are, are you like thinking this is on some other type of level, or what? What did what your thought process when you're in the process of recording this and hearing what's going on, and did you realize it would be as big as it was?
0: Like well. I was hoping it would be, and here's how. Here's the real, the t- real tipping point, and it was a real tipping point. See, Ed Fletcher wrote the message. He did that in his basement in, Eng- in Elizabeth, New Jersey. We used to call his basement "Club Basement." We, you know, Ed Fletcher's percussion player. Ed Fletcher is Duke Booty. That's his alias. He's a percussion player, and he's also a uh, Eng- e- Elizabeth, New Jersey English teacher in the public school system graduate of Columbia University. he's very smart. Fletcher came in with, with John Ch- with John Chase Jiggs who was the arranger. So we all were hanging out and you know in the in, in, in you know as you know, employees of Sugar Hill. Fletcher was very is very clever and he's like, Man, I'm you know, all this like you said, the chicken tastes like wood stuff. That stuff's corny. I'll write some real stuff. I could out all of these boys. I could outwrite them. You know what I mean? He's very he's very um, real with his vibe. So and what was going on at the time, we'd be in his basement. Me and Skip would stay in his basement, call the club basement, sitting down to getting our groove on. And then at that time, we listened to a lot of records because we had a lot of, we weren't, you know, Sugar Hill was a job. So we'd be there listening to a lot of different music. And one of the records that we were vibing on was Brian Eno's Life in the Bush of Ghosts. Right? Mm, yeah. And we were just kind of like digging the, You know, the Sonics, and we're we're musicians, you know what I mean? So we're digging, we're listening to Miles, we're listening to P-Funk and all this stuff. But Life in the Bush of Ghosts came out. We thought that we just, we would play, sit down and listen to that, get our groove on. And so the Sonics of that record were things that we were kind of like, man, it'd be dope if we had something like this kind of vibe, musically, with that hypnotic frequency in on some on some rap, rap stuff. So Fletcher's like, yo, we're going to do that. I'm going to write a rap. Matter of fact, I'm going to write the whole song and put it in, you know, and and, and try to come up with something that he did. So basically Fletcher wrote the the entire, came up with the with the music. I came up with that a little top melody. A lot of times in the studio, everybody would chime in, but he, he started the actual process. And the record, the bass line, drum beat, how he wanted it to be, you know, gotta have it, gotta have it electronic, gotta have it minimal, gotta have it hypnotic, right? So, at that time, Fletcher was kind of like his idea was, I'm gonna, you know, because he was like, I want to write a song for, I want to write a song for Grandmaster Flash. He might have even, he might have thought he, was, I think maybe originally. He wanted to write it for himself and get and get a record, get Sylvia to release a record on him. That might have been part of the factor as well. But Sylvia heard, probably heard it and was like, this should be for Grandmaster Flash, right? So Fletcher wrote every rap, the hook, everything, except for the last verse. A child is born with no state of mind, blind to the ways of mankind, that rap. Mm-hmm. And um, that's Melly Mel. Flash isn't on any of the Trigger Hill record so there was aura, except for the Wheels of Steel maybe some scratching on some other stuff but the ideas of these songs like Freedom and stuff like that came from Flash you know what I mean so he was a DJ but he's not he's not on the records that was a vibe as well so there was this stuff that was building up between the the the, the, the way the industry was going you know you're making records but you're not on it which is Flash and then there was a sort of div- there was a there was layers of what was going on with the Furious 5 when the message was cut that was that as much as it was that you know they didn't like it rappers the the other group they didn't like the record Grandmaster Blaston didn't like it Mel was on it and because they weren't on it they naturally just gravitated like no I don't like it right Sylvia was like this is a hit so, because they said they didn't like it, Mel was more like, you know, kind of, he was still like the voice of Grandmaster Flash in the Fury 5. So, the recording of the message, when it was done, ended up having, you know, we cut the music, mainly Fletcher did all the instrumentation, Mel, uh, Reggie Griffin's on it. He did the first raps and the verses and the hooks and everything. Melly Mel does the final verse. The, band, the Grandmaster Miss Sylvia realized there was a, a you know there was a vibe. She wanted to obviously get the whole maybe some of the other rappers from Grandmaster Flash on it, but they weren't they weren't feeling it. So she kept Melly Mel, yeah, and that's that was the beginning of dividing the band. Up. So that record was was you know and that was also a big game changer sonically. It was you know there was a message attached to it it was a game changer um and uh at the end of the day with success comes a reality for other folks as far as like well where's my position in here where am i at you know uh i'm not on this record so i got a vibe Right. uh and that's you know it's not rocket science you know cats get used to doing certain things and you're not included so you get start wondering what's going on but it was that record that's was massive for the band but it was also in a sense the beginning of the demise
1: oh man that's fantastic well let's let's step forward a little bit and i want to just touch on just i want to touch on tack for a minute
0: because <laughs> okay
1: Friendly as a Hand Grenade probably lived inside of my cassette tape player for probably the better part of three, four months. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I, I loved, love, love that album. And I, I think for some reason or another, I wasn't even totally familiar with the other releases that Tackhead had done until uh i had you know gone on a little bit of a nostalgia search you know try to pull up some of that uh, some of those you know airborne ranger and (laughs) i was trying to pull up some of those tracks and uh it was like oh man there's a bunch here for me to listen to and now i've i've i pulled up on spotify never thought to pull up tack head on spotify and now i'm seeing all of these remixes and different things that are happening and um Is there a possibility, for those that, you know, aren't familiar with TAC-Head, kind of give a little bit of a a background on TAC-Head and how you put that together.
0: TAC-Head started with myself, Keith LeBlanc, and Skip McDonald. And in 1984, we went to, uh, we were recording with uh, Tommy Boy Records, Tom Silverman, and we we did a, a wrote a song with James Brown and Africa Bambara called Unity. And at the same time, Tom Silverman had the New Music Seminar, which was taking place in New York City. That was kind of like the hot news, you know gathering place for a lot of music. A lot of cats were checking it out. It was at the Hilton Hotel. So this this one this second year of it, I believe, he had had a, Tommy organized a producers panel. On that producer's panel was like Nile Rodgers and Arthur Baker. And, and then he invited Adrian Sherwood over. Adrian Sherwood has his own label, On You Sound Records. Adrian also introduced was introduced to Tommy through a, a, a person that worked for Tommy called Ricky Dutka. And they ended up actually um, took a shine into one of Adrian's artists. And the artist was called Akaboo basically uh, introduced Tommy to Akabu and Adrian, and uh, Adrian got invited to come over. He invited Adrian to come over to be a part of the New Music Seminar. And at that time, Adrian was working with artists like an artist named Mark Stewart. Mark Stewart and the Mothin music group called the Pop Food. Mark is from Bristol. Bristol has his own, in England, Bristol has a whole scene over there, they would they are really taking a shine into hip-hop. So that's where like Melly Hooper came from, that Soul to Soul, and uh, you know, the massive attack and all those kiddies came out of Bristol. They were all mates, they were all disciples, kind of like with Mark Stewart. He was like the, the Don of checking stuff out. So Mark was hip to myself, Keith and Skip, to all the hip-hop stuff we did. And also at that time, Malcolm X No Sellout was cut, which is like one of the first, kind of like hip hop sample kind of cut up records and stuff like that so mark stewart's like you know what you're going over to this new music seminar skip and dug and work with tom silverman see if we can get them to come over and cut some stuff so he did we met adrian and again it was almost like it's almost just like the sugar hill vibe it was like we met him and instantly got on introduced him to some of my uptown harlem crew did a hang introduced him to like crash uh to uh uh the Cold Cut Brothers and uh, you know uh, Grandmaster Kaz and we also met some you know uh, African Bamba and some other folks. We had a great time, like it was like a marathon weekend. And at that time, Adrian's working with um, Al York and some ministry, so he's got a project going on. He's like, you know what? Let's get you guys to come over. Keith was really established as a programmer, so like, let's get Keith to go over there first, and then me and Skip followed them. Me and Skip followed over about a week later. So we went to England, Adrian's very clever, you know, dub art, uh, uh, dub remixer, had his hands in the punk scene, or really heavy in the dub scenes, also was tied in with a lot of the independent labels over there, Rough Trade, a Mute Daniel Miller from Mute Records, was, you know, a lot of, he was really, you know, involved in what was going on. A lot of cats were digging Adrian because he could mix his ass off. So we hit it off, go over to England, and then as soon as we get there, we just start, we're like, okay, we're going to do a couple of hustles. You know, we'll, um, Shara Nelson, from Matt, who ended up being a singer Massive Attack, Adrian was working with her as a kid. He also did, was working with Anana Cherry. So he was die- tied in with a couple of artists over there. And he was like, you know, it'd be good to get you hip-hop cats come over and work with some of these other artists and introduce them to the vibe, and I'll dub it up and mash it up. So we started to do a few hustles. One which was for Shara Nelson. The other one was... Uh, with rough trade, and then another one, you know, some other things. We ended up, you know, getting a few jobs to get us over to the pay for some things. And we're like, you know what? While we're doing these jobs for somebody else, we hire a studio, get the artist to come in, cut the tracks real quick, send them off, keep the engineer there for another few hours, and then we start cutting stuff for ourselves for free, or more or less just bring your own tape in, and the engineer's studio is already paid for. It. So we started hustling up, and we were like, you know what? Why don't we we started to enjoy ourselves working very hard. You said, okay, let's cut a record. Let's cut some stuff for ourselves. Matter of fact, Adrian had his own label. We're working with uh, another person that, uh, uh, name, uh, um, that had a studio, John Loder. Uh, Southern Studios. So we're like, let's bundle these things together. You know, we have the ways and means to record a record and put it out ourselves, get it mixed. I mean, we'll mix it master it the whole night so we're like okay let's do it matter of fact we're gonna call let's do let's try an experiment so the first record we did was a record called bop bop and that was under the name of fat's comet and at this time haley's comet was coming out uh haley's com haley's comet was 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 in 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 the works and we just started we just started to come up with some merge some names come up with something funny that might be kind of cool so we called it fat's comet and bop bop was cut and then we did another record off the heels of that called Stormy Weather. Those are the, some of the first two things that we did. Now, mind you, and also Adrian was working with Al Jorgensen at the time. So he kind of bought us, you know, he, he, he had that as a job. So we ended up going in the studio to, to record with Al. Plus we had Rough Trade with Shara Nelson and Daniel Miller to help us finance some stuff. So you had like three things going on. So Al, Al was very cool. Al was like, you know, I want to get you hip-hop boys. Come over and cut some stuff. So we did. So we're staying in East London at Adrian's apartment. Adrian's little flat. And he had like a four-track recorder there. We started to mess around in the living room. Cut a couple of demos on four-track. And then Adrian had already started recording stuff with Al. Al had a had a uh, synthesizer, a big thing at that time. So he, Al heard the four things that we had cut. We cut about Al heard a few things that we had demoed. At the same time, he we, he already had us come in and record some stuff for him. But he liked the stuff so much that we had demoed. He'd like he's like, you know what, y'all can keep the money that I paid you. Matter of fact, take these songs. I want, and give me those four demo things that you did. So we did a swap. Those four songs ended up being the first Tackhead stuff. What's my mission now? Mind at the end of the tether and a couple other things. So that was kind of like the beginning of Tackhead. Tackhead is a name that I came up with. Tackhead was like a name that we called all the home, all the kiddies that are like back in the hip hip hop days, go to an event. Anytime, anytime there was an event somewhere, on Broadway International or wherever, there'd be cats that'd be outside with their boombox. They can't get in; they ain't got, they don't have any money, but they're there. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> they'd have the hoodies on. Yeah. The hoodies had a little sharp, little tacket, little points. We call them tackheads. So we named the band Tackhead. I was, you know, talked. We, we would. We already had our little slang and stuff going over to England, and cats like that. You know, here you got Americans coming in with the, with the, with the, with the with the New York slang, and then we're, and then you have the Americans picking up on all this East London slang. So it just crashed together. Tackhead was formed. Let's do. So now we went from Fats Comet to like let's call this new stuff that we got from Al, and then we ended up taking that and then redoing it again, bastardizing it up, putting some samples on it with you know blah blah blah. That's how Tackhead was formed. So again, it came out of the will to want to do it and the hustle. We did it ourselves with Adrian being the director and John Loder being the studio and other allies that we had that were kind of like enjoying the fact that Adrian was able to assemble my, myself, Keith and Skip. Mind you, we're coming off the heels of all the Sugar Hill success. So we were that Sugar Hill rhythm section that had a name and had more value in the UK than, than, than it had in the States at that time. Because By this time in the States, Run DMC had kicked in and, hip-hop had taken a whole nother way but we were the original sh- rhythm section for a lot of the stuff English cats always took a shining to the originality of what's going on the content of in the in the history of uh, you know how these rhythm sections you know Motown stacks you had the music you had the rhythm section they're like give me the rhythm section if you give me the rhythm section I could do some stuff on top of that so taghead was born out of of an of just being it just being together and doing something different and then we were like let's just make noise records let's just do some stuff that's just no holds bars you know what i mean so we took on a completely different identity from what we had going on in america now if i played some of the stuff that i did with the industrial noise stuff to my mates in america they thought we lost our minds but mind you folks like um trent Reznor from nine inch nails was following us around because they knew we were onto something and um you know so cats started trying to get a taste of what this whole industrial thing that we kind of created in a sense that was kind of you know industrial dub funk you know that's okay we were the first ones to in my opinion to bust that out a lot of cats took that came around and just took a shining to it and tried and and grabbed a little bit of that DNA and off you went that's Nine Inch Nails you listen to the first Nine Inch Nails record you'll see keith leblanc's name and adrian sherwood's name on it they you know they refurbished that first record the first record was didn't you know the first version of that record was okay but by the time adrian and skip got their hands on it that's the nine inch nails record that you hear right now a little bit of history for you Uh, and pretty machine
1: was groundbreaking yeah that was that was definitely a groundbreaking album for nine inch nails for sure
0: yeah. yeah, well that you can hear, that's because Trent would follow us around to the studio, he's trying to pick Adrian's brain. Adrian's like, who's this cunt following us around? Fuck off, I don't want to work with you. And he'd let, uh, he was like, Keith, you do it. That's what happened. Because Adrian wasn't really too keen on like, trying to be this, you know, um, very famous and popular remixer that's just going to take any and everybody's gig. He couldn't care less. Matter of fact, in England, that's the demise, you know. You, when you're hardcore, you're hardcore to the max. So, you know, and Adrian did, you know, uh, Policy and Truth with the Mode. He did a lot of stuff. But he was like, you know what? Who's this cunt that's following us around? He knew that Trent was trying to pick his brain and get all that stuff. So, yeah, I'll do the job for you, but you can fuck off after that. It's pretty much what it was. Well, Sorry.
1: Yeah, no, he definitely had a... Yeah, he, he definitely got a good jump start from him. That's
0: for sure. You know, so Tackhead merged from that into us, you know, going out and doing some shows, we're like, okay, let's let's, you know, let's 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 see what we can do. So what Tackett, what what happened with Tackett was he instantly we started a sound system. That's why you hear the first record of Tackett sound system. And what that would be is outtakes of mixes that Adrian would do in the studio. He we we just run tape all the time. A lot of stuff would just go on a cassette or on on quarter inch. Gary Clell was hanging around at that time. He was the sidekick of Mark Stewart, at least for Bristol as well. So he, you know, never, you know, he would hang out and kind of like, you know, it was, he was, a, you know, Gary Clell used to do as an old freaking thief. So he'd go out, you know, stealing cars and shit like that. So he like, I got to do something different. You know, I got to try to. He saw, he was clever enough to see, you know, hang out with Mark, you know, maybe I can, you know, I can make a career out of this by, maybe finding a way to, you know, to hang around with Mark Stewart and, and be the one to, you know, it's, it's, he was kind of like the minder, like how Flash had, you know, um, cats that would look after his records. Mark Stewart was, was, was uh, he was doing that for Mark Stewart. He would be take the outtakes, and every time Adrian would do something, he'd get a mix of it and Mark would get it and write lyrics to stuff like that. Get, Mark, he would get the outtakes of what we would be doing. Because we just start mixing and do like 10 different mixes of a song. And then and we Mark would say, I like that. Give me that. I'll cut that up and make something else out of it. So we're always recycling stuff. If we did something with Tackhead, that might have ended up on a Mark Stewart record in another form with another title. The, the, the reggae way of doing stuff, like remixes you hear reggae artists do in one song. And re- those rhythms might be on for 10 different artists. Same vibe. And, for any, and that's what we
1: did. And for any Tackhead fans that are out there listening, uh, you can also go to Spotify. And I, and I guess a lot of those uh, outtakes were actually put together in a collection that just uh, I just recently, I don't know how long it's been out, but it just recently uh, hit Spotify. And uh, I, so I hadn't got a chance to listen to that yet, but I'm definitely, definitely going to be checking out some of those outtakes for sure. It's going to be a lot of fun let's fast forward a little bit now to, um, well, let's actually fast forward a lot a bit. Doug, you've been involved in so many different things from, um, I could talk about uh, your work with uh, uh, Vinks and Jungle Funk and of course the Black Jack Johnson with Most Deaf and P-Funk and Bad Brains. Oh my God, that must have been something. Uh, I I couldn't imagine all of you guys (laughs) in the same building. That just seems a little mind boggling to me. Uh, that seems like a project that you would put together. That that had to be your brainchild.
0: Well, no, that was something what? that happened with with um with um Will Calhoun met uh most death first. And actually it was kind of like even you know most always was digging on on a lot of the, you know the rock stuff and everything. Even prior to Will meeting them, most had reached out to Vernon to try to do something. Vernon didn't 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 respond. And uh so there was, you know, you know, um Black on Both Sides was cut. Will runs into Most at a rehearsal studio. Again, it's like hip hop stuff's break breaking out. And he and Mose is like, yo man, I wanna try to you know, I wanna do this thing, man. I wanna do something. Will you and, you know, maybe help me put this this thing together with, you know, with Doug and Doc and and, and, and Bernie and Will is like, yeah, no problem. So Will calls me up. I'm in London at the time with Adrian. And he, and he had a gig and they were opening up for, most was going to open up for, I guess was it was D'Angelo, something like that at Radio City Music Hall. And um, so he had that opening spot. Most was wanting a band. Uh, they wanted him to just have a DJ. So there was a little bit of a vibe going on. Then D'Angelo got sick, and they had to cancel some of the shows, but that's kind of where it started. So uh, Will calls me up. It's like, Doug, man, you know, I got this thing going on, boom, boom. Come on over. So I flew back, and then, you know, we started, we got in the room and just started chopping some stuff up. And But that was Will that kind of made that connection and yeah, put that geez. together. And then as we got all the, in the studio, we all just kind of like started, you know, mapping stuff out. Yeah. So that's how that all started.
1: Yeah, then that whole Soul uh era of, of Most deaf when uh, Questlove was doing all the production on D'Angelo's stuff. And then you had just had that whole spinoff of the Jill Scott and Erica Badu. And so, yeah, you, uh, you you literally have had your hands in, in a lot of different things. And, and the, it, definitely that's for some, that's a project that people should check out is Black Jack Johnson if you can you go find it somewhere but so before I talk about Living Color's new album because we obviously could talk a long time about history of Living Color but you you started with them in, 1990, in 1992 with the Stain album
0: uh yeah well I started I I, I got into, well you know yes I'd say that <laughs> I've known Vernon from the 80s and then we were, we've were we been friends even before he put Living Color together And but my first Top, the first time I got contacted, you know how they say things happen in threes. Right. I was in London. I got a call from Will saying we're going to make a bass change. Prior to that, I was producing this artist called the Bouya Tribe out of L.A. And um, wow. okay. I was doing a record with them, and and uh, I got Vernon to play on it and Corey to sing on it. So that was that's how I kind of got introduced to Will, more or less. And you know, he was wanting to play drums on. It, it didn't work out. We kind of, you know, he was a big tackhead fan. He came to some of the TACA gigs and I knew Will. I knew Vernon mainly. and um, But I got introduced to everybody, you know, then they were basically having auditions. So I got a call from Will. They, You know, they say things happen in threes. I got a call from Will first. And then about 24 hours after, within the, the same day, I got a call from Seal to do be MD in the band. And then about the next day later, I got a call from Bruce Springsteen to play with him. And I always take the first call. Whatever the first call is, is I kinda go that way. I didn't have the gig with any of those guys except for Seal. Seal was like, that's my boy, I knew him from London. You know, we, we hanging out. It's like, I want you to MD this stuff. And I used to be, I, mean, I, I knew Seal when he was when he was squatting in, 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 in North London, West London and shit. Uh-huh. So um, we're mates. And Will called me, That's I said, okay, cool. Came over, did the audition. Did the hit, Out of Fairness came back and then they were like okay they, they had a gig that was still in the books and brazil did that gig it was a hollywood rock early 92 january and then after that gig they offered me to, they offered me to, to join the band and then so then 92 we cut we started cutting sh- uh stain that went in, that it was released in 93 and then that ran its course until about 95 uh 94 we, we toured 93 94 was a Little Idol. 95 was when Vernon knocked it on the head. And then, and that's kind of like, that was that period of living color. So yeah, that's how that went down. Then fast forward, we got back together nine, in 2000, the 99, in a head fake gig, really. And then we started to, you know, we've been we've been chopping our way for the next, last 17 years since then, making uh, a few different records, uh, or what did we do? Kaleidoscope, uh, The Chair in the Doorway. and. No shade. Yep,
1: yeah, which, which is a great new album, but it, we're going to talk about that. But tell me about why do you think, because Living Color really kicked the door open for for black rock bands. I'm not saying that there wasn't, you know, Mother's Finest to an extent and Bad Brains and all that, but why do you think it's been so difficult? I mean, even for bands like, you know, let's, let, let, let's reach kind of a little deeper, even Xavion uh, or or Fishbone, or Follow For Now, or any of these guys, why is it so difficult for black rock bands to kind of really get any traction in the industry? Do you, do you think there's a reason for that? Because
0: yeah, it's, it's very simple. Right. Yeah, it is a reason. Once, you know, it's like, it's not rocket science. Once you, at that particular time, you know, you had white bands that were playing rock music that was obviously from the DNA of blues and, and other artists like that. There's a certain industry that was created for real off of black news off of black dna black musicians artists from african descent or from you know and of color and they were able to take that and you know make and do well off of it stones like zeppelin you know so there's a there and then you have artists that were you know chess records and then you have the you know rock uh, uh, you know, early uh, you know, like folks like black rock artists. i look at like you know, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, you know, um, artists like that that were you know, um, you know, Fats Domino that were you know, Ike Turner, I can't, you know, really your first real rock record was Ike Turner doing and you know, and making making these marks, but again, you know, we had the uh, the state of the of the country and segregation and all these other things that were going on still goes on. So, like, you know, there's if you look at the trail of how things were done going back to the Civil War and how, you know, you know, in the history of, well, how did we get on? How did these things come, you know, these categories and stuff like that, this rhythm and blues and, you know, and, and blue music and stuff like that. So it's all history that goes, I don't want to get too deep. You check it out it's good to know folks and check your history out we are and maybe if you learn something hit me to it so you know at the end of the day you know what I mean there's a buildup of how do you, you know a category keeps things separated you know and um, you know for what little Richard did and everything like that these artists have been doing this from time so now here you go now you got like you know the Barquets kicking in doing their thing and you got you know you got now George Clinton coming up with basically busted it wide open to my in in a a sense because he he came with the full with with many different degrees of rock and funk in my opinion he just kept he just he just kept he just kept hitting you with it whether it's coming from the producers or from the different artists or from the different bands different concepts he kept throwing it at you you know what i mean with that funk but still rock whether it's whether it's Eddie Hazel throwing it down, yep, yep. Bernie throwing it down, yep. you know what I mean, and Parliament, and, the, and 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 also taking folks from James Brown's band, bringing Bootsy in there, getting him and Macy on all that stuff. If you're playing this funk and that, you're playing that heavy, you're, you're delivering it, you know what I mean. I mean that's you know that's as rock as it's going to get. So okay, you have all these things going on, but It still had to be kept in the category, you know what I mean. It still economically it was good to be up. this black music, it's R&B fun. Yeah, so, so,
1: so I'm excited. Jimmy hendrix
0: yeah. You know what I mean? So let's look at what Jimmy did, all these things. Jimmy was that alien that came in and was able to bust stuff down. Why? He went to England. You know what I mean? The English folks were able to at least, you know, it, you know, they got their issues there, but they were you know, but Jimmy came in just tore it all down. So now you got living color comes up. And a lot of times what happens is at this time it was the build up of let's look at what was going on. You got now um, now now we had our you had our R and B moment, you know what I mean? You got all your you got your OJs and you got Philly, you got Motown, you got all these labels doing stuff, and then boom, now you got the hip hop era kicking in. You also got gospel stuff happening as well. So now a lot of the artists are merging from the, the 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 folks that should be might have been picking up that git fiddle and starting to play the younger generation like i want to be a dj i want to be a rapper stuff like that so you had this vo- this era of hip-hop that kicked in now you know you still got all mother's finest you got all these bands still 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 being there trying to do stuff but it's like where are you going to play at where's the clubs that are going to book you, you got to be in the major meccas or you know mother's finest was opening up for uh for aerosmith and stuff and stuff like that. you had to see you had some movement going on now you got living color now, so Living Color was kind of like it's interesting because Living Color had the assistance of other, you know, rock uh, stars to help bust them out. You know, um, I'm working with Mick Jagger at the time. I knew Living Color when 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 I was doing Primitive Cool. You know, Mick had heard Mick was hanging out with a lot of some of the folks that were. You know, you know, it was hanging out with with, uh, with Roger Trilling and, and Roger Davies, who was managing Tina Turner. She's on a resurgence, real rock star, real rock and roller, right there is Kingdom. So there, there was a there was a, a moment where Mick's taking a shining to Living Color, and 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 I sent Mick to go see Living Color beat CBGBs and with Jeff Beck. He comes to me, Dougie, Dougie, I heard about this band, Living Color. I've been checking. You know, you you know the guys. Actually, I do. Yeah, man, you know, matter of fact, you should go, you know, check them out. So he ended up going sent them down to CBGB to go see them and comes back the next day. It's like, you know, Dougie, I'm digging him. What should I do? I said, you're a freaking Mick Jagger. You can do whatever you want to do. You busted all these blues cats, you know, do what you want to do. So he definitely took them in the studio and demoed them out. Did something with them with that station. These are the different stages. Now, here's a Mick Jagger, rock icon. He still couldn't get Living Color signed at first. What does that tell you? It's just the industry's not ready for that. It's not ready to accept black artists playing rock and roll. Oh. The end. Run credits. So now what <laughs> happens is, now it took a minute for, you know, now you, there's no denying things when the movement's going on. Because now Vernon's rocking it out. You know, he's he's getting his groove on. Vernon used to come to our, to our spot with Tackett on 14th Street. And when he was thinking about doing it, he's put the idea together of... of of um of, uh, of uh, a living color we kind of had Tachead roll we saw hang out at the time Bernie was at the new music seminars at that time too so a living color started in 1984 you know that's when Tackhead started we'd all be hanging out and he'd be you know Vernon was almost like on some yo man y'all are doing tack head kind of vibe It was almost like a you know like you know can y'all do a gig you know we had a little friendly competition going on but at the same time we're mates so at so fast forward to seven, let's do Mick Jagger's. Fast forward to 1984, you know, um, I did just back in 85. So it was like 80, yeah, 86, something like that. At that time, Vernon had already started Living Color two years prior with different, different folks and it kind of settled up with Corey Will and Muzzy. So let's just look at the reality of what was going on at that time. You got a lot of, you know, you got your Eric Claptons that are doing their thing. You got your old you got your 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 you know, I mean you had like you had um many different art you had MTV, okay? That was your main outlet for visual art for audio and visual entertainment, especially for rock. Stuff like that. a lot of bands were doing stuff there. So it's it's already kinda like, you know, marketed it's already set you know your MTV you know boom 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 your name and rock and all this other stuff going on you heard it first so now but the but the what Vernon was doing started to get a buzz going on in the downtown New York scene because they're playing the CBGB's and stuff and you know they're you know the Ramones and a lot of folks that are there that are taking place in, in that scene you know Hilly was open to letting Living Color come and do almost like a residency there so they had a chance to actually build out And so here's what happened. So in my opinion, it was just a map. It's just very simple. It's like Living Color kind of got us, you know, did his thing musically. And and the music was, you know, they're playing rock. I mean, they're coming out hard. Cats thought it was a white band still when they heard it. Mick couldn't get the band signed at first. It took him a while, you know, and I was frustrated. I remember this is Mick Jagger. You know, this ain't ain't me. This is Mick Jagger. Jagger, You know what I mean? Right. He's trying to get the band signed and cast a bunch in their face up. So finally he got him signed to his own label that he was with, Sony. And to Walter Yetnikoff and all those folks over there. So I remember the day he came back he was happy he finally got him signed. So let's look at what happened. He gets them signed and it's almost like the Living Color starts to get the, the you know, the they start to release something. The first record didn't really do anything. I think the first song was Middleman or whatever. It wasn't until the second single came out, Cult, that started to line up, and that's what blew open for them. But see, what happens in the industry a lot of times, what happened well, for my opinion, is a wall comes up. It's like you let one band through, and then you put a fucking wall up right after that. And that's kind of what I see what happened with Living Color. Living Color was the band that kind of got through, and then, they put, then the industry put another barrier wall up, in a sense, and it's like the sort of Fishbones, 24-7 spies, some of the other bands that did kind of got got you know they got put they got they kind of got put on as well you had the black rock coalition going on but it was almost like a a wall kind of went up (laughs) okay we got our one black rock band here let's keep all these other folks out (laughs) so it's kind of like and I'm not being hardcore I'm just being. it's just it's my it's my it's my observation and that's taking place in you know a lot of other a lot of other things but for a black band you know, and, and also in this, with the social uh, um, uh, vibe that was coming from Living Color, you know, it was kind of. they not only dealing with the rock and roll; you're dealing with the reality of what's going on. Because it's you know, it's a very social conscious band. So it's not like you know, you're, a band is coming out here on some bubblegum stuff. You're talking, you're, you're talking about. We're to, they're, they're laying it down. Do you really want to hear that every day? Do you really want to see that every day? Is America ready for that? And that's kind of like one of the factors, in a, in my opinion. You know what I mean? So there was some, there was, there was a, a movement going on because you had the Black Rock Coalition thing that, that Vernon formed with Greg Tate and, and some other founding members. Um, and when Living Color got busted out, Vernon retired, kind of like w- removed himself from that a little bit. So that was kind of left to, to you know, uh, to the other folks that were there to, to deal with it. So you have this kind of, like, living color just blew up. And, and then the machine, the, the the record industry machine, started to, oh, no, oh, we can make some, you know, this, this, this is hot. The record was hot. People were digging it. Yeah. Corey's got that wetsuit on. And he got the braids out. And he's coming off the heels of, of doing um, platoon things lined up. mix I did the solo tour with Mick. Right after that, the Stones get back together. Living Color is on the right at the right time Mick's still tight with them Mick gets them to go on they end up they were only supposed to do a couple of shows but they end up doing a whole Steel Wheels tour so things are lined up great for Living Color good timing the social commentary uh, so, the social commentary stuff that was going on yep. all these things were you know America was in some crazy it was deep in, in, 19, in the 80s you, had, you know you had a lot of different things that was going on And Living Color came to the rescue, you know what I mean. And then at that time, you know, what other Black Rock, you know, what other Black Rock bands were there? There's a time it was coming. They all got a little shine. 24/7 Spies, Fishbone got signed to Sony. So did Bad Brains, you know what I mean. And it was a lot of other bands that started to, you know, you know, um, Eye Against Eye, you know, Melvin Melvin band. And so other f- things started to rise off, the in my opinion, you know, off the success of, of what Living Color did. It kind of became, okay, like we we became a little fashionable. Let's find us another black, you know, label. We need to find a black rock band, too. It's just like hip-hop. Same thing. Same thing. You know what I mean? When, you know, uh, uh, Joe and them did their thing, and, you know, they, they ran it a certain way, and then hip-hop, you know, folks, Russell Simmons and, and, and Rick Rubin, like, we can make some money off of it. We're going to market this. So folks took that route. And but the pro the issue is it's almost like, you know, it was kind of weird because it was kind of short lived. Because then the grunge scene kicked in, right? And then another scene kind of came in, and you didn't have any black grunge, you know, artists. You know what I mean? Yeah, or you know, like, you know what I mean? If I'm I am do not know if I'm making any sense here, but it's no, just the industry the industry shifts. And with Living Color came Living Color. And I think the industry put a, it was kind of like a a, a, a brick, wall, uh, like this invisible wall came up. We got our black rock band, okay? How many were all right? Let's keep it rolling. Let's keep it moving. So it was kind of like Living Color was that band, you know what I mean? That, that got the shine and things lined up. And it isn't because it isn't they didn't deserve it. It isn't because they didn't work hard. It isn't because it wasn't justifiable. It's it, it, but there was a, there was it, 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 it was. There was folks that helped the band out to give them some, to give them some some shine, and cats. You know, Vernon was writing great songs. You know, and it was a great timing for that band to be put on and have that big Sony machine start to be activated. And once you activate that, then they won the Grammys, and then they won another. Then Times Up came out, and then they won a Grammy for that. Once you kind of get put into that vibe and people are like, oh yeah, black rock band living color. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Boom, boom. So it becomes like, you know, kind of like that. You know what I mean? It kind of like became almost like, you know, that's what happens with, you know, with, you know, then, you know, like, you, you know, at that time, uh, you know, you start thinking about what big rap artist was. It. it was Run DMC. You know what I mean? Then after that, it became like Public Enemy. You know what I mean? It's just like everybody has their moment and shine and stuff. And, the, and then the machines start kicking. And Public Enemy was with Sony as well. Difference is, they were on two different two different floors of the building. <laughs> Public Enemy's in the R and B side. With the Colors on the rock side. They don't necessarily get along with themselves either. So there's a certain kind of vibe that goes on, even just internally between the record labels. You understand what I'm saying?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. So now we have a political landscape that is really messed up. And Living Color to the Rescue again, perfect, perfect timing with this brand new album shade, and a lot more to say. Uh, and a little bit less of um, a little bit less of a filter, so that's a good thing. Uh, and so tell me about this new album and, and tour that you guys are doing and uh, you know some of the things that, that people can expect to see and, and just a little bit about what they can expect to hear from this brand new album.
0: The new record is was conceived at Robert Johnson's centennial celebration at the Apollo Theater, and it was there that we kind—I of, guess you could say—we got the spirit to start to, in, you know, look into our, the DNA of our ancestors and start to deal with some with the blues. After we did the performance at the Apollo, which took place we like we didn't rehearse, we got there and put the song together backstage and. Did preacher blues and hit it got a standing ovation at the apollo and, and it was like godson we started to go okay what's this all about so we ended up saying let's see if we can have a conversation about blues the dna and how how it has gone into many different forms of modern music right now you, you know so we started to mess around with the idea of how can we have this conversation not just do a, a you know the or the the things that you know a lot of bands do blues and they're like okay it's this in a certain vibe let's connect it to hip-hop and these other art forms and so started doing it and i and i worked with a producer named andre betts from i did um i did the madonna record with it funny enough i just did me and him just did an article on billboard a couple hours before that's coming out about erotica record uh which which great produced a few songs on he also worked with michelle and we're old friends Dre was also part of the Stain record. He did a uh, WTFS with an old friend of mine. So me, me and Dray been working together for years. And in the process of doing this new record, we, we were like, you know what? Why don't we take a different approach? Let's bring in Dre. Uh, you know, I talked to the guys and said, man, why don't we get Dre to produce the record? Guys, like, okay, you know, we, we kind of everybody kind of knew Dre. so we got we kind of got him, got Dray to take point and help us put this, dissect this this storyline. We did a great job so we started you know the process going and recording to get and trying to figure out ways how, how to just get out of our own way and try to make this music that is raw and not necessarily preconceived so we go in the studio and dre was like don't bring any songs in just start i'm gonna run click let's just start putting some grooves down blah 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 so we did a really really raw and organic one thing led to another Took us a while to be able to see if we can assemble a body of music that represents different storylines. So we ended up cutting like a song like uh, "Preaching Blues" first, which is what started us off at the Apollo. And then we're like, okay, let's see if we can do a hip-hop song. So Corey used to sing the verses of "Who Shot You" at Soundcheck all the time. He's been doing it for years. Yeah. Vernon's like, why don't we try to? Why don't we try to build up something with "Who Shot You"? So we did. So now we got a hip hop vibe going on. And then next thing you know, we start, let's, let's start to, we had some bookends. We had a, a preaching Blues and a Who Shot You. And then we started putting other elements in place. And before, you know, it took us a while, but we started to get a collection of different sonics and songs that became the Shade record. It took us a while. A lot of time was based on start and stop, maybe getting cold feet maybe not understanding that we're now living color. The band is doing a record that isn't in the usual process that we're we're used to to doing. You know, we go to the studio and bang stuff out, you know, and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, everybody's got kids and family. A lot of life gets in the way a lot of times. So it took a while and there was a certain form that the producer was like, you know, man, that's not hot. This is hot. You know what I mean? So it took a while for everybody to understand what Dre's trying to do. And, um, so we ended up, we ended up, you know, finally over about four years assembling this what is now the Shade Project. And the last song that we ended up doing was Inner City Blues. Um, so we found a way how to like even subliminally, you know, we, we we to how do we make this record that still has sure, the living oh sugar, the living color DNA, and also go for something that is going to be new and different. So we started with Dre's stuff. We ended up doing a body, great, good body of work with Dre. And then we ended up going back in the studio and cutting some other stuff ourselves. And, those, and then we ended up, out of those two songs, we, uh, we, we said we need something more harder. So we ended up, ended up with those those We Need Something Harder songs are Patterns in Time and Glass Tea. And then, you know, we started to, you know, just, you know, let's see if we can tie the this. We wanted to have a narrative and a conversation about the blues and deconstruct it and try to find a living color's interpretation of how we would do it. It took a while. A lot of it was start and stop. Again, I repeat myself, but it it takes, you know, we took long breaks in between. We thought we had the record. You know, "Mm, it's not there yet, twice. You know, this record could have came out in 2013, but in listening, we started in 2013, maybe even 14 or 15. We were like, ooh, it's not there yet. And that took a while. So there was a lot of stop that was in place more than the the time that we were actually in recording but by the time we got traction going changed those tires got everybody that you know there was some fallout here and there and, but it's good cuz that's how you you make records you know you 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 volley for like what's what's supposed to be and by the time that vibe started to the dust started to settle we ended up real we ended up having what is now shade so it wasn't something that was like preconceived or done, it was something that we had to fight for to get to. It was something that we had to get out of our own way and listen to other folks. And at the same time, we had to find a way to make sure we had our living color DNA imprint on that and also find ways to keep it going. And, you know, so I was very instrumental in, you know, kind of helping the, you know, I'm like an ambiance director. Like I knew Dre organizing the studios, you know, that broker between band and producer and record and, and uh, the label and the um and the remix and the uh, and the mixers i brought in chris lord Algie and some other folks in and and, and we ended up you know uh, uh, Vernon reached out to, to ed Stasem. will reached out to nico Bolis. uh andre vets reached out to uh, uh, uh rich keller so we kind of we kind of had like different mixers coming in to do certain things, and, and I tried to make I tried to find a way how to put the different remixers assign the songs to those remixes and also all, to the mixers, and also still make it sound like it's one body of music. And that was an art all in itself, just getting the right mixes right. Took a while, took a while, and I got to tip my hat to Missy Calaza at the label, who had a lot of patience with us in trying to you know put this together and that's an honest real story you know what i mean i'm not going to sit here and act like it was like oh yeah we went this is a piece this was all wine and roses absolutely not it took it took hard work you know uh, a lot of hard work stuff that a lot of behind the scenes stuff that i don't even think the band realized was going on uh you know of uh, just you know keeping everybody on on point and you know and diffusing the ticking time bomb before it, turned into it before things exploded but that's how it took all of that to get shade I'm really proud of this record I'm proud of the fact that we were able to pull something off that uh, wasn't like you know we still got our blues element we still got the living color vibe we still got us uh, you know we're still talking about you know certain 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 things that are that are close to the band and we're able to take a big small song and make an association between the preaching blues and a uh, inner City Blues, you know. I mean, you got Marvin Gaye and Little Robert Johnson and Biggie Smalls. All three of them got killed by guns. You know what I mean? And yeah. and all three of those were great songwriters and artists. You know, how do you put those three things together and make it make sense in the world of Living Color? And I think we did. I think I'm proud of what we did. I'm proud of my band of of the guys of you know being able to you know you know to to, to take my take my advice on getting Dre as a producer and also being able to to, um everybody contributed in 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 a in a a very key way but but hands down andre bets the producer of this record he did his thing and we wouldn't have i mean he we put up with a lot of stuff you know having the band show up late and having guys come over there and use this place the clubhouse Calling me up later on, Doug, what's going on? And snap that whip. Come on, guys, let's get this done. And i am being honest with you. It's yeah. not, it's, you know, and everybody knows. I don't I'm gonna sleep good tonight. I don't I don't hide <laughs> nothing. Because all of that went into the DNA of us making this record. Right. So a lot of times you hear cast oh yeah, blah, blah. Look, here's the deal. You really want to know the truth, you don't kick anybody under the bus. It was a team. It took Corey going and it took Drake on Corey. Now it's your turn. We're gonna do vocals. Vernon, guitar time. Will, drums over again. Andre Betts. If it wasn't for him, we would not have the bodyless record. The end, run credits. And <laughs> and I ran and I took point on a lot of stuff and you know, to be that negotiator. You know what I mean? When things might break down and Dre's like, Yo oh, man, I'm down what's up? I'm like, Dre, I got you, let's work it out. You know, and I had to be the negotiator a lot of times to translate things that than only I could to Drake's, me and my boys. And also try to keep just, uh, you know, things on course through the different managers and the different, so between Missy Galazzo and on the team of folks that helped put up with Living Colors um, um, frequencies and, and everybody's frequencies, all of that went into us being able to, you know, and, and to make this, and it's good, it's good. It's nothing that, you know, and when you look back, it's all good because there, everybody, you know, you don't know what you're doing sometimes when you're in it. Sometimes you get used to doing something a certain way. Give yourselves the opportunity to hear, to do that, and then you go back and you realize, you know what? What we, you know, what Dre's doing is still, is still our best avenue. So, you know, we, you know, look, it's hard for one person to walk in a straight line, my friend. Never mind ten, but if you can find a way to listen, you can learn. But Andre, Betts, I'm gonna say it again. Andre Betts. Wasn't for him diligently working on that record, we wouldn't have the record we got right now.
1: Well, and I'm I'm sure that you know everybody needs to head to the site and 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 find out when you guys are touring and obviously get out to the Rec-A-Stowe, if you have one, if you can find one and pick up a copy, pick up a digital copy, and obviously on Spotify too. And and I want to thank you for so much time that you spent man. No awesome problem, thing. brother. But wait, before no you go, problem. before you go, I do want to talk about one more thing. I know you're like, "Oh my lord. Uh I want to talk about Wimbash. Can you tell me a little bit about that before before you head out?"
0: Well, here's the deal with that. I'm glad you're mentioning that. Wimbash is a e- event that I created about 13 years ago to give my good friend uh, Skip McDonald A homecoming party Here's a short story Real quick If I can do it I was living in London Came back Came back in, um, uh, To Connecticut Like in 2000 Something like that Started to get back Into the scene You know And I started to re- Get myself reacquainted With some old friends Started to see What clubs are doing things And uh, I ran into a club I ran my next door neighbor was like Yo man there's a club out here Sully's. they have music Live every night I'm like Well that's good Somebody's still doing live music every night. Start seeing your friends at Guitar Center, whatever. Cats of weekend warriors, aren't playing anymore. Like, yo, Doug, man, I wish I was, you know, I'm glad to see you doing what you're doing. Man, I, you know, that's what you're doing, man. I'm not doing anything, man, I got a job, I like to play again. I'm like, oh, man. Then my friend Skip got me in the business. He's coming back, for the, he's in England, he's coming back with the first time. A lot of families and friends here. I'm like, man, Skip ain't been back. Let me give him a party. So I said, I'm gonna cash these chips in. I'm going to have the party at the club that's having live music all the time, because he even offered me to have a gig there, and I kept passing on it. And all my friends, all my Weekend Warrior friends that ain't doing nothing, I'm going to get all y'all to come on down and jam as well. By the way, let's get some kids, let's get the next generation to come there. Let me bring some young kids there and get them to come and jam as well. So that's what happened. So it started off with just going to be one party and I was just gonna put together one band or whatever and it got wind. Next thing you know, this band wanted to play, that band wanted to play, that band wanted to play. Next thing you know, I got 10 bands playing at an event that was just supposed to be me and keeping, and skipping and, in and the jam with some other folks. So one one afternoon and one night we had a great, uh, call it a Wimbash. Wind Wimbash was, was named off of my name being misspelt so many times. I go into a hotel I was in Europe and they spelled my name Wimblish, Windish, whatever. One time I got my room key and it had Wimbash on it. I said, if I ever have an event, I'm going to call it a Wimbash. So I kind of like got the community together to support the local club and also for su- support my mentor, Skip. Just get like a like a family reunion. But that family reunion spread to bands that were in Philly and other places. So everybody, a lot of folks came, had a great time. And they were like, yo, when can we do it again? So I got encouraged to do it again. And at that particular time, I met some folks, my friend John McCarthy who has, a, has a company called Rock House. Uh, and he saw, he came to the Wimbash. He was like, man, this is great. I'd like to bring this out to the NAMM show in California. So, with some sponsors, we had a real big Wimbash out there. So then I was like, wow, this is great. Got a bunch of kids to get involved, you know. And then I'm like, let's find a way. Now that we got some kids, let's find organizations in the community to start raising, do fundraisers. So that we can keep, you know, musical instruments in the schools or in the and in, in the community centers, because the funding's being depleted. So I started, you know, I said, okay, I'm gonna have the swim bash. I'm good. Let me let's raise this money and let's give this a, a great portion of that to these some of the local community and stuff like that. So we started doing that kind of work, and then it just built out. People started hearing about it. Next thing you know, I get hooked up with the School of Rock. They were like, yo, we want to come play your Wimbash. I became an ambassador to the School of Rock. So they started bringing some of those folks. And, man, when you bring a School of Rock, and they bring not only do they bring, you know, like a whole, they bring all their families. You can bring one School of Rock chapter. You got 50 people there. So I said, okay, cool. Let's start to open up a little bit more. What if I can, if we can open up or find a way to start Showing the, giving the kids some education, teaching them, you know, getting my sponsors to come in. And also, let me bring my lawyer in. Let me bring my accountant and teach these kids about music law and about about money, you know, how to, how to you know, handle your money. Take the myths out of stuff. So then I asked Living Color, man, why don't y'all, would you guys mind coming to play at one Bash one time? So then that's when it really opened up. So I had Living Color come and play. And then, I, then we did workshops during the afternoon. Got my sponsors to come. In. So I got a little mini event going on. Next thing you know, people catch wind of it. Next thing you know, I have a windbash. I have windbashes in the U.K., Cabaret de Dominican Republic, Philadelphia. Um, even one in Anchorage, Alaska, L.A. Started having them in all the uh, New Orleans. Now I have a bash every year. So it just grew out of the landscape of wanting to do something and bringing family together. No more, no less. Not wanting a nickel. And then my partner, Diane Nielsen, we started to, you know, my my, my, my we started to... Really start to focus on how to, you know, find other ways and means to be able to get this in into the eyes and ears of different places. So now I partnered up with the mayor of West Haven, Connecticut, the honorable Ed O'Brien. He took a shining to it, and then we started to have a Wimbash on the beach, and we and and we started to raise money for the West Haven school system. We raised over ten, twenty thousand dollars already. For the West right. Haven schools to be able to get them school marching uniforms and music stands and you know look the the economy is crazy enough as it is but without music and arts where are we going to be at right now I was free when I when I went to public school that was there now those funds are being taken away so I I you know I'm I'm like I'm at a point in my life where I'm I'm blessed to have had the history I had. And I wanted to be able to I'm not waving a flag on some preacher stuff. I just wanted to be able to show by example of bringing like-minded friends to the table and what can we do? It's a we thing, not me. And with that frequency and looking out for the next generation, I started to get the, I started to get the eyes and ears of, of some other younger bands. So for example, unlocking the truth one of our new metal bands that are out there right now got them to play to win bash. They got, you know, they they came, they were busking on the streets in New York City. Next thing you know, they get discovered. They played the Wimbash and played certain places. Brandon Taz Niederhauer, young little guitar, young guitar player, probably one of the best guitar, one young talent out there ever. He just came off the heel. I bought him to play the Wimbash with me out at Nam, sat him with me and Victor Wooten and Eric Gales and all these other artists. Next thing you know, while he's out, he gets a call, to audition for the School of Rock is Andrew Lloyd Webber's auditioning, you know, kids for the School of Rock. Already auditioned a thousand kids, chose one, saw him playing, flies him out there, bam. So now he's got the lead role on Broadway at the School of Rock. These are my Wimbash alumni members. The young kids from, you know, from playing at the Wimbash, they get shine on them. And, you know, and it goes on and on. So I'm just thankful that there's, it's not me, it's we. Go down to the Dominican Republic. Went down there. There's a there's a project called the Dream Project, taking kids out of the inner city, giving them an education. I was MD with Lauren Hill. I, you know, they asked me if I wanted to come down there and do some Goodwill stuff. I'm like, Miss Hill, we're tight. When was the last time you had a vacation? She's like, Doug, I ain't been on a vacation in a while. So let me, you know, I got some friends that would like for you to come down and, and and do something. She had heard about the Winback. She rolled up to Oxford one time, middle of the night, one thirty in the morning with her family, freaked everybody out at Sully. Then she just rolled up in the rain came there people are freaking a lauren hill is here didn't do anything so we uh, i had i did a we did a wind bash where lauren hill was the headliner of the wind bash in the cabaret de dominican republic the year before living color was the headliner so we just opened it up and opened the lens up and just and just is, uh, my whole vibe is this get the get the young kids together with the elders and put and, uh, and all those folks that might have been on their G5 and flying around making a lot of money, let's get them down back down to earth. Let them see the uh, let them come and be on stage with that young kid that's looking up to them, eyes are bright. You know, and keep that keeps the egos right, keeps the balance in this world right. So I'm really, so all you good folks out there, anybody that's doing anything, say, look out for that next generation. And if you want a Win Bash to come to your city, what I do is this: I find ambassadors all over. In each city, I'll find we find a band or a person that wants to take point, and can actually find a a a a, a, a place, a like-minded club that's good. Find some of the lo- can put together some of the local bands. I ro- I, I I roll down with my SWAT team, uh, SWAT team, and bring some. Maybe I might come down with a handful of folks. Bring Will Calhoun down, or Eric Gales, or whatever. Come in. We infiltrate. We find a a, a organization that's doing something. And we do and we do an event, and it's been a win-win situation. Now I get my sponsors to kick in, but see, with with sponsors, there's money that they can give off for education and for the youth. So with that, it's different than me saying, "Give me, you know, I need some dough to do a Living color game." No, it's better when you, you know, I, 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 we've been there, done that. Let's get some paper together for the next generation to right. do that. Now I take it another level. I get the kids now to organize the win bash teach them how to do it look if you teach a person to fish they'll never go hungry so my vibe is if there's anything i can do until my last breath i want to be able to help teach the next uh, help assist with right. my allies with my wife with my friends to be able to help the next generation continue in arts dance ballet uh whatever you know what anything where you your imagination can come into and into, into, in, 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 in shine and with good and with good people you can get it done. So it just took a look, it just happened naturally and organically. And I and I've raised a lot I, I've been thankful to have people that are like that's something that I want to be. I want to I want to be a part of that. It's taking a it's taking life of its own now. So uh-huh. hopefully maybe I can do one in your time.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're going to be coming to Atlanta. We'll definitely you and Funkatopia, we will put together a win bash here in Atlanta. I'm telling you that's going to happen. My so. man thank so, you brother yeah we're gonna do it we're gonna do it we got plenty we got plenty of schools in this town that that don't have that their arts programs are getting cut and if people wanted to find out about uh the wind bash and do it in their town because we have listeners all over the world uh where can they go to find some information about Well,
0: that? just go go to go, go to uh, my facebook site you'll see your- You'll see my Doug women's Facebook site, and you'll see a Wimbash Music Festival series that's attached to it. I've done it over in the UK. I've had it in England. You all know right. what I mean? And um, so it's all over the world right now. And um, I'm looking forward to coming to a town near you. But 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 totally, if you got anybody out there listening that really believes and really wants to do something, you may not. Ha- you may not be a musician. You might have a connection with some place. You know what I mean? You can go to my. You can go to my website. You know, you can go to you can you can you can email me at Doug Wimbish base at Gmail dot com. You know what I mean? You can you know, you can find you can reach out. I will reach out to you. You know, I will come, you know, I, and if I can't come, then I'll, then up, then there will be somebody else that I know that's close by that will come. But let's get you know, I I, I really believe strongly in that we got to do things ourselves. The only way you can get something done, look, every day I wake up, I got to walk over to my base. It ain't going to walk over to me. So if you feel like you really want to make a change in the world, you pick up that phone, you email me, and, I'm, and, I, and I will get back to you, and we can make something happen. With good people like yourself listen to this, to this broadcast. We can make a change. Okay? Doug. You go to doug at dougwimbish.com. That's the one that you want to go to. doug at dougwimbish.com, and we'll get the job done.
1: Doug, I appreciate you taking so much time, man, and uh, you have a good one. Everybody, head to the Living Color website, check out the tours, download, listen to the album. If, you, if you're short on cash and you had a Spotify account, you can listen to the album there. You can see him on there. Obviously, you can get all the uh, information for Wimbash if you're interested in that off of uh, Doug's uh, website, the Facebook page, and I'll make sure that all the links are along with this broadcast as well. And, man, thank you so much for your time, brother.
0: You're welcome, brother. Again, Doug at DougWimbish.com. Hit me up. Let's make it happen. You're doing an excellent thing, brother. Keep it rolling and keep it funky. All right. Thank you, man. All right. Peace out. Peace out.